today on Pure Spectrum. So I, I learned making a bad choice on a doctor, not only can it cost you money, but it can cost you your, your life. So the first thing I did was I found the best malpractice attorney in the city of Dallas. And I said, sir, you don't, you don't understand. I don't want to sue anybody. He said, why, why are you here? I said, because I've got a brain tumor. If you would ever told me that some kid from Oklahoma that started out as a, as a bartender in a roadhouse would end up spending time around Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and getting to go around the country and speak to people, I would have never believed it. So it was an abandoned warehouse. So we're driving along, we pull in this parking lot, and there's a couple of black SUVs back in. We get out, we go up and they check our IDs, and we walked in. I look over in the corner, and there's a guy wearing a, a little headphone, and I can tell he's got a gun underneath his jacket. I look over in the other corner, there's another one. I'm thinking, man, what am I into? And pretty soon I see Warren Buffett. i never seen him before. And then Bill Gates walked up to me, and he shook his hand out. He said, hi, Bill Gates. I don't think I've met you. <laughs> I said, hi, Norman Beck. Nice to meet you. Welcome to Peer Spectrum, where we bypass the ordinary and familiar to explore the unsettled edges of medicine, where we tackle real problems in depth with those specialized and dedicated to solving them, where we mine the knowledge and experience spectrum of your peers through long-form conversations, not sound bites. Take us with you anytime, anywhere, and get ready to make your downtime count. Get ready for Peer Spectrum with Keith Mankin and Colin Miller. Welcome to the show. We're just really thrilled to have you today. Well, thanks for asking me to come on. I appreciate it very much. Norman, let's just start out with your story. There's a big reason you're here today, and it's going to help for everybody to understand how you how you got to on the stage of a TED Talk talking about something that you said you'd hope nobody would ever have to use, but it's advice you wanted to give. Take us through, through your story from the very beginning. From the beginning, I'm, a, I'm, I'm from a small town in Oklahoma, a town called Owasa. Just north of Tulsa, and I had kind of a checkered background, shall we say, in that one of my first jobs, I was a bartender at a roadhouse. And when I say a roadhouse, I'm talking about a real old-fashioned honky tonk. The owner carried a gun in one boot, a blackjack in the other. There was a shotgun in the back room. There were no beer bottles. It was only beer cans because if a fight broke out, he didn't want people getting cut. Hmm. I started at 14. Now, I wasn't too worried about getting arrested because our best customer was the sheriff of Rogers County, a guy named Amos Ward. And he drank CC and seven. Well, everybody else got one shot of whiskey. Well, he got two. It was my first lesson kind of in customer service. <laughs> but one thing that I learned, because in roadhouses, there are really only two things that people do. You dance with women or you gamble on the pool table or shuffleboard. So I learned real quickly about, I was too too young to learn about the women, but I was old enough to learn about the gambling pretty quick. And the owner made a lot of his money gambling, and I learned real quick that he was kind of a hustler, and I learned about some of the tricks of the trade and how people could scam people on the pool table. And so I became real interested at a very young age in scams and cons and hustles because later... I was at the fair and I got taken by a game called Razzle, which 
razzle. It's the single most deadly game on the carnival. You'll never see it played hardly ever. If you do, you need to run because it's they cheat on the front end so you win. Mm-hmm. So you'll lose on the back end. It's it's real counterintuitive, but it fascinated me. So my my whole life has been built around cons and swindles. That's, that's what I've done. At about 14, I got real involved in magic. I became real interested in deception and got very, very involved in magic, doing shows and whatnot. And learned very quickly that you've got to kind of go dig in the dirt to do to do such things and i got went to college on a football scholarship and hated it hated college football because i was kind of taught that you should learn that's the idea of going to school i didn't think it was drinking beer and chasing women and playing football i thought there was more to life than that i didn't know that (laughs) yeah well anyway and so i got involved in bridge real quick uh the card game and that totally changed my life meeting an old man in the coffee shop and him starting starting me on playing bridge defines who i am today and what i do because i got so involved and i wanted to learn and i'm i'm the type person i'm a big fan of information i think information is power in any avenue you want to go into it doesn't matter what it is and the best way to get information is you go to whoever the best is in the business and you talk to them and pretty soon, if you work at it, you'll be as smart as they are. Well, at least that's what I thought at 19. I found out you won't quite ever be as smart as they are. But you can. that's how you learn. So I started off and said, well, who's the best player in Tulsa? And they told me, and I learned from them. And then I said, well, who's the best player in the state? And they told me, and I learned from him. And I said, well, okay, who's the best player in the world? And they said, well, it's a guy named Bob Hammond. I said, where does he live? And they said, well, he lives in Dallas. Well, that was only about 90 miles from where I went to college in Durant. So the next time there was a tournament in Dallas, I hitchhiked to the tournament, uh, talked the tournament promoter into letting me do a magic show and pass the hat so I'd have money to eat on and then give me free entries. And I guess I got to meet Bob Hammond. So we got to be friends. When I graduated from college, I interviewed for a job with him at 18. And at the time he sold life insurance. He said, I'm don't do that. He said, do something honest. He said, be a bookie, <laughs> which I didn't do, but uh, we actually call them turf accountants, by the way. <laughs> so when I graduated from, from college, I became a police officer. So I did that for five years and became really good friends with a crusty homicide detective, guy I talked to every week twice a week for 32 years without fail. I never missed. Every Tuesday and every Thursday at 9 a.m., we talked on the phone. And for 32 years, I went to school with him because he he was a, a master at human nature and people and situations and circumstances. He was the best that I've ever seen or ever I've ever known. And I never realized it at the time, but that was really, all this stuff was sort of grooming me for what would come later. So 22 years ago, the best bridge player in the world said, why don't you come go to work for me? I need somebody to be the director of claims and security. If you ask me my elevator speech, I'd say I have the strangest job in the world. I fly around the world and try to give away money. 
which is true because our company, we cover uh, contingency cash prizes, things like hole-in-one golf tournaments, half-court shots at basketball games, field goal kicks, bucking bulls, dropping golf balls out of airplanes, you name it, I've done it. Some things you can't even imagine. Like one time we insured alien spaceship landed on the earth. We even did one at the apocalypse came we'd have to pay somebody a million dollars <clears throat> my only question on that one was how am i going to pay the claim if i'm dead that's right yeah and what and what would he do with the money so and what would they do with yeah where would you <laughs> so and, and just to be clear here norman because we talked about this already offline what you're saying is if there's a half court shot in the middle of the game someone hits it because a car dealership sponsoring it and they win ten thousand dollars the car dealership doesn't pay out that $10,000 you do, but they paid a premium to you Correct. to insure that. Yeah, just like your car. Just like if you had a car wreck and, and you get paid, just like on our stuff, if, if, you ever, if you ever wreck and you win, then we pay. So, What kind of premium did somebody pay for the apocalypse? <laughs> I'm just kind of curious. I don't even remember. I'm not the salesman, <laughs> so that's not an area I really get into that much. But So my job is when a new contest comes in. Something, some new event that we've never done, never thought of, they'll come to me and they'll say, what do you think? And I'll say, well, give me a little bit of time and I'll start making phone calls and digging the dirt and figure it out. Like the Snipers Association called one day and they wanted to ensure hitting a one-inch target at a mile. I had no idea. So I got on the phone and I started calling and I found out fairly quickly that it really didn't depend on who was doing the shooting, but it depended on what they were shooting. The equipment was what made the difference mm-hmm. and how many attempts they had. And I found out fairly quickly that if we would have done it, we would have had a claim. Well, we're not in the business of giving away money. We're in the business of making money. So I had to call them back and said, I'm sorry, but we, we can't do this because it's it's too, it, it, the, the premium will be too high. And I don't always get it right. I mean, sometimes we've done stuff and I didn't ask the right questions and I didn't do the right thing. And I came in on Monday morning and I had to write a check for 10000 or 50000 or whatever because I made a mistake. So I've tried to work real hard at not doing that anymore. And part of, and the way, the way that I've learned to do that is you have to learn how to think. And not so much think outside the box, but think outside the house. Because just thinking outside the box, a lot of people do that. So you have to really look at things a lot differently. So what leads me to you folks today was four years ago, about this time, actually. I, I had become deaf in my right ear. And I have a girlfriend who's wonderful. She got on to me because I would say, what'd you say? She'd ask me a question. I'd say, what'd you say? And I'd say, huh, what, what? And she kept saying, you got to go get your hearing checked. And I didn't want to do that. Finally, I came in one afternoon and she handed me a business card. She said, here. I said, what's this? She said, it's a card for the audiologist. She said, you have an appointment tomorrow at 4 o'clock. So I went. I went to do this little sound check. And I had actually been... One aside, I had been to a, there was a bridge player that was a doctor here in, in Dallas, and this was a, a, I think it's a valuable lesson. The biggest single bet I've ever made, personal bet, was with a doctor. He and I played in a bridge tournament, which is pretty common, and 
before the tournament, he said, I'm going to beat you. And I said, well, that's great. I'm, I'm really happy about that. Good luck to you. He said, I want to make a bet with you. He said, I want to make a little friendly bet. Well, I said, okay. Now, I thought a friendly bet would be like maybe a dinner or lunch, Coke. That, to me, that's friendly. He said, what, I said, what do you want to bet? He said, if you beat me, I will give you free medical care for 10 years. If I beat you, you have to teach my son how to be a good magician. Well, <laughs> with the cost of medical as it is, I mean, this is a, this is a big bet. And all, a lot of the bridge players I knew went to him and they all liked him and he was very personable. And I thought I had the best team and I said, I'll take that bet. Well, I won the bet. But in a sense, I didn't really win. I really lost because what I didn't realize at the time was he was a really bad doctor. Huh. huh. Really bad. Uh, in fact, he did not diagnose my brain tumor when I went in with the hearing problem. I had been in to see him about this before. And there was another medical issue that he did not discover that we found out once I had the brain tumor. So it was really not a very, it was a really bad bet. So I, I learned I've learned that have, making a bad choice on a doctor, uh, not only can it cost you money, but it can cost you your, your life. And that you can always make more money, but you can't get your life back. So I go to this audiologist and he tested me. And when he got done, he said, I need you to go get an MRI. I'd never had an MRI. In fact, I'd only been really the doctor other than for occasional checkup one time when I was real young so and i said okay when did you want me to go do that he said this afternoon hmm. about 30 minutes i've already made you an appointment wow that gave me real concern yeah yeah because i did not know the the what but i knew the why mm -hmm. and it really i was already scared i was already scared when he said go get the mri so I go get the MRI, and they said, okay, we'll forward this over to your doctor, and he'll get back in touch with you. The next day, I got a phone call, but I did get a phone call from the nurse, which also concerned me. It was from the doctor. He said, you need to come back in. Actually, he said, you don't need to come see me. You need to go see this other doctor, Dr. Peters. And I was real nervous. I went to see Dr. Peters, and when I went in, anytime I'd ever been to a doctor before, you go into an exam room. He didn't have me go in the exam room. He said, come on back to my office. Oh, oh dear. And I had been to the principal's office a lot when I was in high school. <laughs> but, buddy, let me tell you guys something. If you got to go to the doctor's office, into his office, at the doctor's office, it's worse. And we sat down, he said, Norman, I introduced them, we exchanged some pleasantries, but it was a pretty tense conversation initially. I, I I could tell something was up. I didn't know what, but I could tell this wasn't good. And he said, Norman, I, I know why you can't hear in your right right ear. He said, you have uh, you have an acoustic neuroma. Now, do you know what that is? And I said, well, I know what acoustic is. That's what you used to play pool with. <laughs> and he said, no you have a brain tumor. He said, you have a very large brain tumor. He said, it's the biggest I've ever, ever seen. 
he said it's roughly the size of a baseball. You know, it was the first time I ever really kind of wanted to be average. <laughs> um, he said, now, it's slow growing. It's benign. He said, if you leave it alone and you do nothing, all it's going to do is kill you. You could not have hit me with a two by four any harder and got my attention any more than than those words because when he said all it's going to do is kill you, gentlemen, that will get your attention. He, I said, time out. I said, I don't like door number one. I said, we'll take door number two or door number three. And he said, there is no door number two or door number three. He said, the only choice you have is brain surgery. He said, you'll spend about 12 hours in surgery. You'll spend about a week in ICU, in the neuro ICU unit. And then you'll spend about a year recovery time. And I, I, when he said this, I, I, I flashed back to when I was a policeman. I was a police officer for five years. But during that time, I worked a part-time job at, at the hospital. And one of the, the two words that I remembered the most from when I was at the hospital that came back to me was code blue ICU unit one, code blue ICU unit two. And that also scared me because I knew that if you're an ICU, you may not be, you know, it's kind of like being in Fishhook, Arkansas. You not may not be at the end of the line, but you're awful close, you know. <laughs> so I, I was really scared. And he said, it'll be me and Dr. Lazard will be the two surgeons that will do this. And we'll set up an appointment to come back in in a couple of weeks or whatever the time frame was. And I said, okay. And I got up and I went out to the car and I just sat there and I started thinking about it. And I didn't really have a pity party because it was, I didn't have the time because the only thing I could think of was just like, I approached it just like I could do any contest we have. I got to win. It's not a question, you know, and, and we, we're totally fair and above board in everything we do. But this is a time, this is a game that I was willing to cheat, lie, steal, do whatever I could to win. It didn't matter. I would, what, whatever it took, I wanted to win. So I went home, but I couldn't tell my girlfriend. I couldn't walk in and say I got a brain tumor. I could not say those words. I couldn't. I, they couldn't come out. So I wrote out on a piece of paper, I wrote a note and I walked in and I handed it to her. And uh, she read it and we talked about it. So I got up the next morning and I did not have a pity party. I mean, I, I because I, I you know, it's kind of like being in a fist fight. You can't sit over and cry. If you're going to be, you got to get in the fight. You got to start doing something. So the first thing I did was I found the best malpractice attorney in the city of Dallas. And I made an appointment to go see him. I walked into his office and I sat down and he said, how can I help you? And he said, you've been in a car wreck? And I said, no, I sure haven't. He said, you took some drugs and you had an adverse reaction. I said, no, I haven't had any drugs. He said, well, you had some surgeon that operated on the wrong wrist or something. You had 
<laughs> I said, no. He said, well, Mr. Beck, he said, I'm a malpractice attorney. He said, we're going to have a real hard time winning this lawsuit. <laughs> and I said, sir, you don't, you don't understand. I don't want to sue anybody. I said, the money is irrelevant. That's not why I'm here. He said, why, why are you here? I said, because I've got a brain tumor. I found out yesterday and I said, I've got to go crawl in bed with two men for 12 hours. And I said, I've never done that before. And I said, I want to know if these are the two kind of men that I want to crawl in bed with. He said, in 35 years, he said, I've never had anybody ever suggest or ever asked me this before. And I said, well, until yesterday, I didn't need you. <laughs> he, I said, think about it. I said, 50% of the doctors out there graduate in the bottom half of their class. <laughs> I said, I don't want somebody like that. I said, I want to know what these guys are like, how they are. And he said he, he would do it, and he did do it. Um, but I didn't stop there. I, I found a couple of doctors that I knew from when I was a policeman. I called them and talked to them and said, what do you think? And then I found a, neuro, a neurologist who was not associated with any network or the hospital at all that I said, I want to meet you, have a beer. I don't want any medical records. I don't want any record of this conversation. Nobody will even know that you and I talked. You and I one-on-one. -on -one. And we sat down, and I took him my stuff, and I said, I want you to give it to me straight. What What are my chances? Give it to me in odds, and don't sugarcoat it. Tell me what, 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 where I stand in this poker game. What kind of hand am I holding? Is it a hand I should throw in it or should I play? You tell me. And but but that was I mean that wasn't all I did. I also went and found that there was an organization for people that have acoustic neuromas that's like a help like a self help group. Now I never had a self help group for nothing. But I called them folks and said, Hey, I, I need help. I need to know. I want to talk to. So I found somebody. They they put me in contact with a lady in Dallas that had the same thing. And I said, I want you to walk me through step by step, from the day you went in the hospital to be operated on, until now. Tell me about it. Give me give me, and don't sure. And she did. She gave it to me. Everything exactly as it happened. I found three people that the neurosurgeon had operated on. Actually, two he had operated on and one that he had not. And the one that he had not was really telling, uh, made, a big, made a big impact on me. About 20, now my neurosurgeon is close to retirement now. He's in his 70s. But let's go back 25 years. He was, you know, a young guy, very, you know, and by the way, neurosurgeons are cocky jerks. I mean, not jerks, but they're cocky. <laughs> all surgeons are. I mean, all of them have big egos. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I've been around them, and I'm not saying that's bad, but they just do. So anyway, this woman went to see him 25 years ago, and he said, I can't operate on you. And they asked him why, and he said, I don't have the skill set. 
I'm not that good. I, there are only two doctors in the United States that could operate on you. I'll get you in contact with both of them, but I can't do it. I got to tell you guys, that made me feel really good because that was a piece of data that really mattered. Because no matter how big his ego was, he knew he couldn't fly that particular plane and was willing to, to pass it off. And rather than do it, and take a chance, he wouldn't even do that. He passed it off. So that was really an important thing to me. The other thing that I did, because I had worked in the hospital before and I kind of know how they operate, I went at two in the morning, I went to the hospital, went up to this neuro ICU unit with a box of donuts, passed it out to the nurses. He said, hey, I want to bring y'all something. Y'all, I know you work real hard. Nobody ever says, you know, doesn't ever say thank you. <laughs> that was kind of a lie. I went because I wanted to find me a nurse that I could talk to. Because I used to date a lot of nurses when I was a policeman. <laughs> Two in the morning, there's not a lot of places you can go to meet women. Hospital was about the only place. I went to the date, <laughs> but I did want information from one. So I found this one nurse. We started talking, and she's pretty friendly. And I said, I got a problem. I said, I'm about to have surgery. I said, I've got to have this neurosurgeon operated on me. And I said, I'm trying to find out what kind of guy he is. And I said, I don't, kind of off the record, do you, you know, what do you know about him? And she said, well, I'll tell you. He's rough and he's tough. He's got a really shitty bedside manner. He's kind of got a little bit of a Napoleonic complex and it's his way or the highway. And he's the best surgeon in the city of Dallas. I said, we'll get along just fine. <laughs> we'll get along just fine. So when I finally went in to meet him, it was kind of funny because he, you don't, patients don't think about this, but if you go in to talk to a surgeon, it's a job interview. Guess what? You're the employer and they're the, they're the employee. And, most people don't realize that. They think that whatever the doctor says I have to do and, and he's the boss, he's not the boss until you decide to put him on the payroll. Until you decide to put him on the payroll, he's not the boss. So I went in to see this guy and we had a talk and in the course of the conversation, I told him that I knew that he was from uh, Montreal and that told him what his favorite restaurant was in Montreal and his mouth dropped open <laughs> and he looked at me and he said how did you know that I said look I'm about to have to call in bed with you for 12 hours I believe in knowing something about a person before I do something like that <laughs> and to this day he doesn't know how I knew that that was his favorite restaurant um, I actually sit outside their office and talk to him people you know other patients as they were going in, ask them questions. And there was a shoeshine man that sat right outside Dr. Peter's office because they did it. The two of them worked together. His name was Al and I got to know him and Al, we, we became pretty good friends. And one day I asked him, I said, Al, what kind of doctor is that Dr. Peter's? And he said, he stopped popping the rag because he could tell that my question that I was, I was, I was serious. He said, well, he cares. 
Well, that made a difference because I was scared, guys. I got to tell you, I was as scared as I've ever been. And I knew that the only choice, the only thing I could really do, I would do everything they said. If they would have said put on a pink tutu and and do whatever, I would have done it. But the only thing, the only choice I could make that would matter would be pick the right hospital and pick the right doctors. And what a lot of people don't think about in a hospital, probably the most important person in any hospital is the janitor. Because if you don't have a good janitor that keeps a place clean, and infection sets in, you stand more chance of being killed going in the hospital than you do walking down the streets of South Chicago. Most people don't realize how important that is. So I had the, the, the malpractice attorney also check the hospital and check the anesthesiologist uh, because people don't realize that, that that's the guy that keeps you alive while they're cutting on you. Um, I hired a guy, a doctor, to sit with my family during the surgery for the 12 hours because I wanted a, somebody on my team in my court that when that surgeon came out and I was knocked out, if something had gone bad, that they could interpret what the surgeon said and would know the right questions to ask better than my my mother or my girlfriend would have known. And that that really gave some real comfort to my girlfriend and my mother both because they it was almost like you had somebody sit there and hold their hand. Another thing that, that I did is I found a website called Caring Bridge. And what it is, it's a free site that you can go sign up for if you're a patient. And you can post information about a person's condition. And what that did is that freed my girlfriend up so she didn't have to answer 50 or 100 phone calls from people all day long. She simply would say, she told everybody, please don't call me. I'll, I will post, when I have information, I'll post it on Caring Bridge and you can go look there. So people didn't have to try to call and get in. It's a great, great idea for somebody who's seriously injured, sick, whatever the problem is. It, it was it was a real uh a real help to me and to her and the, the whole thing. Another thing that I did is I made a really strong effort to become friends with the doctor's nurses, Jan and Verena. Another, I didn't just go in to see the doctor, Dr. Peters and Dr. Lazar. I went in and see Jan and Verena. And talk to them before I wanted to see them because I wanted to get to know them as well. I said Verena, it's Veronica, I misspoke. But I, I and when I gave my TED talk, I invited both doctors and both nurses and the shoe shine man to come to my TED <laughs> Did you really? That's fantastic. That's Absolutely. Yeah, I did. I I uh I, because it mattered, because those people were important. They were important to me. 
people don't realize that a lot of people don't realize how important the nurse is. They make a mistake of, of only talking to the doctor. And one of the questions that I asked both the two, the two nurses that it was real important, how long have you worked for him? Well, that seems like a very innocent question. It's not. Because if you've worked for him for six months, then there may be a problem. You've been there 25 years. Makes me feel a lot better. A the longer point. you've been there, because it makes me know that you're the... And I also think that this is true in life, not just in, in dealing with doctors, but people of the same uh, skill level associate with each other much better than you don't see the world's best bridge players spend a lot of time with people that are not any good. The world's best bridge players, their friends are other world-class bridge players. And I think that's true in doctors. If you find a really good doctor and you vet him and you do the research and you find out he's really good, there's a, I think that the chances are extremely high that anybody that he works with on his team is going to be the same caliber he is, or he's not going to be working with. And the problem is that most people don't, they turn a blind eye. They just think, well, you've got to get, there was a, here in Dallas, there was a, a neurosurgeon at the same time that I was involved in this that they called uh, Dr. Death. Mm. They ended up going to prison right. for operating on people when he was high on cocaine and, and alcohol. And, and let me tell you, you don't realize it, but there aren't that many neurosurgeons in a town like this. So the odds of you getting somebody who... It could have been very easy had I not gone to the extra mile and done the checking. It could have happened to me. And you only get one chance. This isn't like going and getting a bad meal. If, if, if you've, this was by far the most serious thing I'd ever been involved with and knew beforehand that it was going to be. And the only thing I could do was do everything I've learned and what I do by day to hopefully save my life at this thing. Um, that, that's kind of the story in a nutshell. Now, uh, one thing that, that, that also that I would implore people to, to do is, and this is something I did not do. This was a $30,000 mistake. This was a $30,000 mistake. I did not read my insurance policy. Mm. Um, I had insurance, told them I had a problem, told them what the problem was. They called and I got pre-authorization to go in and have the surgery. They spent about a half a million dollars at the hospital. They paid off like a slot machine, not a problem. They said, well, we have a problem paying your surgeon. I said, why do you have a problem paying my surgeon? They said, well, you didn't get a second opinion. I said, wait a minute. I said, I had two surgeons operate on me. I said, I went and talked to both of them. They said, yes, but 
Um, they work together. They're in the same network. And if you'll read on page 32 of the policy, it says you have to talk to somebody outside of the network. I said, I did. I talked to, and they said, yeah, but you didn't, you didn't actually go and get, get any paperwork and records on that. I said, let me ask you a question. I said, had I done that, what would they have used to make the determination if there was any other treatment available? They said they would have used the MRI results. I said, the CD that it came on. They said, yeah, the CD. I said, we still have that. I said, you pick any doctor in the city of Dallas and I'll go take it to them and let them make the determination. I said, I don't know if you'll read the paragraph above it. It says you had to do that prior to the surgery, which it didn't matter. I mean, it, it, from at, at the end of the day, the results would have been, the results are the results and they weren't going to change. But they wouldn't do that. They, I actually, because I, I actually had to go back in for a second surgery after my first one. I had the first surgery. I got out and I was on the mend. I had it on August in August and in November. I sprung a leak and started leaking spinal fluid, which I didn't know about. That's bad. Right. You start leaking sure. spinal fluid. It's, bad. It, it, it's not it's a good thing. Really yeah. I, I did not know. Because the way I woke up one morning, there was some stuff on my pillow, and ah. it was on Christmas Eve. Of course. Now, at four o'clock in the afternoon, now, what do you think the chances are of getting a hold of your surgeon on Christmas Eve at four o'clock? Well, if I, if I could say having been a surgeon on Christmas Eve at four o'clock with that happening, I say you can reach us. We're not happy about it. I hope you had success. <laughs> I've been in that. I've been got, on the other the, side. I got the answering service and within 10 okay. minutes he called me back. And that's great. Said what, what happened? What's the situation? And I, I told him and he got me to the hospital and we got it taken care of. I had to go back to the ICU again, but I can go back, but but that wasn't nearly as bad as the first one. But still, yeah, it was the level of care, the service was the best I've ever had, yeah. ever. I mean, like like I had like a one to one ratio on the nurse when I was in there. I I was a magician, and what was kind of funny one one night. And by the way, here's something else that I that I've learned, and that people don't realize it, but a hospital is a jail. It's a jail. If you're in the hospital as a patient, you're an inmate. Now they may not call you an inmate, they may call you a patient, but you're an inmate because just like being in jail, you don't really want to be there. I did not want to be in the hospital. I wanted to be out as quickly as I could. So I learned this trick early on that the quickest way to get out of the hospital is to get out of the bed. Mm-hmm. The more you get out of the bed, in fact, they would come by to, to give me to walk me around and they put me back in bed and I bugged them to death. I would get up, say, I want to go walking. I didn't really want to go walk. And I remember I was walking one day and I got to the to the nurse's station and the nurse said, Norman, you seem to be getting up an awful lot. I said, be sure and write that down. <laughs> put that in my chart. That's right. And. And the, in fact, my surgeon said at one point, he said, we're going to need to talk at some point about you getting to go home. And I said, no, we're not going to have that conversation. 
I said, it's your job. When you tell me I'm ready to go home, I'll put my pants on and I'll walk out of here. But I'm not going to suggest, can I go home? Can I leave? Because I don't want to put any kind of pressure on you or, or, or to do the wrong thing. So that that's kind of that's kind of my story from the from from beginning to end. But I, I I've got other little tidbits I'm sure I can put in. If you want to know something else, I'm happy to share. Well, yeah, I think we need to um, to dig a little deeper. We don't have a, a lot of time, but you raise so many interesting points. It's really ironic that of all the things, and you you dug the dirt and you and you turned over every stone. <clears throat> you even went to the malpractice attorney, which I want to talk about more. But the one thing you got tripped up on was the one that you actually work in, which is the insurance thing. I mean, you know that insurance is made so that they don't pay you unless everything is right. On, uh, perfectly lined up, and that was the one thing that you missed out on. I just, I just think that's a curious fact, and um, a lesson to be learned for people to really look at their at their policy. Well, you know what really tripped me up there was the fact that they said yes, it's fine to go ahead and do the surgery. Had they said that there's a problem, you don't have. They never bothered to tell me when we called that you got to have a second opinion. They said, yeah, you're fine. Right. To do that. They gave me the green light on the surgery. So that's really why I was tripped up. Right. Uh, yeah. Let me ask you another question, Norman. I'm just curious. Why didn't you get a second opinion of all the sources of information? And I ask that because I think that's what most patients do. They, When they're thinking, am I doing a good job? Am I looking at all the options here before I consider the treatment that's been recommended to me? I need to get a second opinion. Well, I did. I had the neurologist that was not associated with the group that was, that was totally off. Okay, that was, that's right. I did that sort of off the record. Uh, that was a, but yeah, I did get a second opinion from another neurologist. From neurologist. That's okay. But, that, that makes sense. Unfortunately, he died between the time that, that like in a two month window, he, he passed away of a heart attack. So I wasn't able to go back and we did, and I didn't go into the doctor's office and have, a, I did it on the QT kind of on the down low and right. Because I didn't, I didn't want him pressured. I wanted, I wanted, I wanted it black and white with no gray. Yeah. And um, putting the insurance aspect aside, what would you have done if you had? What do you see you would have done if you had had a negative response? What if the ICU nurse had said, "Uh, uh-uh, you don't want to go to this doctor," I or picked another one? I would have okay. moved on immediately. So you would have just. Uh, chosen another one and then gone through the same route is same that process absolutely very, very good yeah, were there any inconsistencies in the sources of information did anybody say something that contradicted someone else or no okay no not a okay. single what let's talk just for a moment about that malpractice attorney because i think most of our physician viewers listening some of this sounds familiar to them if they had to pick somebody for their family member or for their own care and everybody's a patient at some point they would do a lot of the same things, but they have this network of people already. They have colleagues and friends and neighbors who are already physicians. So it's a little easier and faster for them. But going to the malpractice attorney is interesting. It's just like going to the janitor is interesting. And I can see both points. Was there anything else that that malpractice attorney told you, any insights that he had just about the area or even how he might pick a neurosurgeon if he had to? Because that's the, totally on the other side of the fence. No, not really. I mean, he was, 
he was able to go back and check the databases and see if if they had had any lawsuits filed against them, if they'd had any judgments. And he was also able to, one thing that a malpractice attorney can do that this is something I didn't think about. They have a network of doctors that they know. So he could call doctors on the QT and say what, which is what he did. Right. What do you know about so-and-so and such and such? which I never thought about that. That was, an, uh, he told me about it after the fact, but I never thought about the fact that because the malpractice attorney, a lot of the times they hire doctors to testify against other doctors. Right. Right. So that was, it was, it was, a le- there was a lesson to be learned there. I will oh. tell you that um, the single most gratifying thing from all of this I started, because of this, I've started doing quite a bit of public speaking. I'll go around and tell, tell people my story and whatnot. I went to speak here a couple, three months ago. A lady walked up to me who I did not know. She said, I, I need to thank you. Now, I didn't know the lady, and I thought that's a very strange way to start a conversation. I mean, most people start with, hi, how you doing? Hey, how are you? But she started off with, I need to thank you. And I had seen the woman, but I hadn't really looked at her. Now, most people, this is a mistake most people make. They see things, but they don't look at things. And I'd seen her, but I hadn't really looked at her. But when she said, I need to thank you, I now looked at her. And when I looked at her, I could tell she was about to cry. I could tell her face. I could tell her voice that she was about to break. And I said, Thank me for what? She said, you saved my life. And I said, I saved your life. How did I do that? She said, I heard you talk about three months ago. And I had a medical condition. And I did what you said. And I found out that my doctor was bad. He was a bad man and a bad person and a bad doctor. And I got away from him and I got a hold of a good doctor. And had I not listened to you and done what you said, we wouldn't be having this conversation because I'd be dead. And I thought you should know. And, Unlike anything that ever happened to me, that that gives speaking and telling the story some purpose that people wouldn't necessarily know, because it was a message that mattered. And unlike any conversation I've ever had in my entire life, that conversation meant more to me than anything else. Um, so if people can learn something, if they can gain something, then it, then this has purpose. And if I can go out and talk to people and speak to them and tell them about some of the funny, fun things I've done, which I have, I mean, I've had, I've had, had a great life and had some great stories. We didn't even delve, delve into some of the times when I got beat out of money and stuff, but 
But then the day that conversation, that woman saying that thing, really, really meant a lot to her and to me. So, for the physicians listening right now, um, yeah, you, you talk to these two neurosurgeons. We talked to the first one, Peters, and then Lazar later. Um, yeah. If if I'm a surgeon right now listening to this, or a family doctor or whomever, what can I do? Besides being a good physician and, and doing a good job, what can I do to build trust with you as the patient during those encounters? Is there something, and it, maybe was there something that you saw initially that made you want to question this and go further, or is that just because of your background? I'm guessing it's more because of your background. But what can they do better to to build that, that bridge of trust? Because... There, there is a big gulf be, between patients and, and physicians today, um, and people are more willing to go online and trust non-reputable sources of information. What do you think, though? I mean, what could they do to do a better job just in the communication? Well, a couple of things that, that come to my mind. Number one, I, and I understand this, but I think a lot of the time, time restraints make a big difference, and they don't take enough time they because they want to move on to the next one. I think taking the time to answer a patient's questions in a way that they can understand. The other thing that, that makes a big difference to me is when they don't sugarcoat. I don't want you to tell me how great it's going to be. Tell me how it's really going to be. Don't don't make me think that this is going to be a cakewalk because it's not. I know Dr. Peters, whenever I went in, and he told me, he said, you're going to be a weekend. You're going to have 12 hours of surgery. And I thought, yep, I can see that. That makes sense. He said, you're going to spend a week in the neuro ICU unit. And I thought to myself, yep, I can see that. And I, that seems very reasonable. Then he said, you're going to feel like you're going to feel bad for a year. And I thought, no, there's no way I'm going to feel bad for a year. I'm going to be back quicker than a year. He's wrong on that. But 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 that's what he said. Well, he was exactly right. He was 100% correct. And, and looking back on it now, I thought, that was really good that he told me that. Because I, but at the time when he said it, I didn't believe it. That's the only thing he said through the whole process that I thought, that can't be right. How can I feel? I mean, they're only going to be in there for 12 hours. I'm going to be out of the hospital in a week. How can it take a year to feel good? Well, I didn't realize that when you, in fact, it was so funny. One time that one of the nurses walked in and said, how's your pain level? So what's it feel like? I said, it feels like somebody hit me over the back of the head with a beer bottle. (laughs) And they said, I don't know what that feels like. I said, you weren't raised in northeastern Oklahoma, were you? <laughs> uh, yeah, that was. But I, I think most patients don't. They don't. They don't take the time to try to build rapport, rapport with the doctors. Like I wanted to know. Like I learned about about both of these neurosurgeons' personal life and their their spouses and their kids and. What it, what they were? I wanted to know about them, besides 
than being a doctor. I mean, I really wanted to know where they were coming from outside of the office. It, it, it mattered. It mattered. That mattered to me. Um, most people don't do that. When, when I, uh, I had this issue with with the brain tumor. They also found another medical problem that I didn't know I had. That my doctor, that I had won the bet on bridge, didn't bother to follow up on. That could have possibly killed me had I not gotten it taken care of. It. Went to this doctor and things were really good, but but they had some drugs that were very expensive. One drug I had to take for three months. It was eighteen hundred. It was it was nine hundred dollars a month. So I'd gone the first month and I paid the nine hundred and I was coming in for my second month and the guy that had come in front of me, this patient, was a jerk. He was a rude, he was mad, he was rude to the nurses, he was rude to the receptions. He was just a really bad patient. I gotta follow him. I'm coming second right behind this guy. <laughs> well, this is not good. Well, I apologized to the receptionist and I apologized to the nurse. And went and saw the doctor and didn't think much about it. And on the way home the next day, I got to thinking about it. I thought this is just not not a good. This was just bad. So I stopped at the bakery. There was a bakery between my office and the doctor's office, and I bought the biggest cake I could find. And I took a thank you card. I just took it to the doctor's office. Now I just been there the day before. And I just wrote on there, you know, all patients aren't bad. I want to thank you for the great job you do. Took it in, gave it to him, and said, I want to once again apologize for the guy from yesterday. I paid $35 for this cake. And the office manager, she said, Norman, how do you stand on your drugs for the next two months? I said, well, I got the first month. I said, they're... It's about 900 bucks. I said, I haven't bought them yet because I still have a little bit of time. She said, come on back to my office. I said, okay. I have no idea what's going on. Walked back and I sat down. She reached in her drawer and she pulled out a little form and she said, here, sign here. And she gave me the two months worth of drugs and samples that was would have been 1800 bucks. She said, here, take these. So my $35 cake saved me $1,800 out of pocket. And I never thought about that. I didn't think about it as being, I wasn't looking to gain anything or other than just trying to be nice. But I feel certain that the guy that came in before me, there were no $1,800 free samples. <laughs> Probably not. One of the things that patients make a big mistake is that you're in the hospital there's a book called Read the Dealer by a guy named Steve Forty. It's a book on gambling and changed the way gamblers or casinos work in Las Vegas. And basically the book was a way that you could, it was called Read the Dealer. And if you could get the dealer to like you or hate you, you could exploit him and win at blackjack based on that information. If you liked me or you hated me, I could exploit you. They've since changed the rules after this book came out, so you can't do that. 
But but it didn't matter which way you went. Well, I find that to be true in life. If I can get you to like me or hate me, I can. Ex- I'm not going to use the word exploit, but I can. I can use it to my advantage. And I found it works better if you get them to like you than if you get them to hate you. So all I'm trying to do is get people to like me and do things that are the right thing. And so all the time I was in the hospital and I felt like crap. I felt really bad. But if a nurse or an x-ray tech or a janitor walked in and cleaned my room before they left, I found out their name and said, thank you. Every single time. There was one nurse who was not my nurse, but was on the same floor, knew I was a magician. because I, I have some notoriety of being a, a close-up magician and whatnot. And I'm walking the hall. They make, they had the nurse walk me in. He stopped and said, you're, you're a magician. He said, yeah. He said, could you show me, could you show me something? It's three o'clock in the morning and I'm basically naked. I've got on a dressing gown. I showed this guy a trick and I didn't want to, but I wanted a friend in my corner. And so I took the time to do that, even though I felt bad. Yeah, I would just uh, point out that um, the advice about uh, doing what's right and, uh, and about getting people to like you works both ways, not just for the patient as well. I mean, um, you you talk about when you had your uh, cerebral spinal fluid leak, and it would have been fairly easy for for your doctor to say, "Oh well, there's somebody on call. Um, it's Christmas Eve. Why don't you contact them? They'll take good care of you." But the fact that he actually came and and helped you himself, that was above and beyond, and that's something that that really. I mean, that's why his reputation was so glowing through the community. So you picked well, but also he set himself up well to get that kind of report, I think. Yeah, he did. Well, Norman, we're getting a little close to the time here. So I wanted to touch on something else. We'll just kind of shift topics here. But you've mentioned you're a magician and you do have a pretty interesting background. I want to talk about, we talked a lot about risk analysis here and that's what you do for a living. Um, There's someone else who is, is widely known for this and someone you, you actually know, you know fairly well, uh, that's Warren Buffett. It's kind of interesting, so just tell us the first time you met Warren, what, what that was like. Well, for, for any listener who doesn't know, Warren Buffett started a company called Berkshire Hathaway. That's their, they're based out of Omaha, Nebraska. And the people that, that are our shareholders in his company look at Warren Buffett as they call him the Oracle of Omaha. There are two men actually, there's Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. In some ways, Charlie may be more interesting than Warren. But every year they have an annual shareholders meeting in uh, in Omaha. And 11 years ago, my boss, who's the number one bridge player in, in the world, was going to the meeting and he, he got me in to, to go as well and to do magic for the shareholders on Sunday that they have a, a place called Borsheim, it's a jewelry store, and they shut them all down. And they had me come in to, to do magic, and, and Bob was going to play would play bridge with them. But before we, when I went, he said, now on Friday night, he said, you need to wear a suit. Well, 
you have to know my my boss. My boss doesn't wear suits for anything, and we don't wear suits here at the office. It was very strange. I said, "Why am I wearing a Why am I wearing a suit?" He said, "You need to wear a suit." <coughs> he said, "We're going to a to a, an event Friday night." He wouldn't tell me what it was. He said, "You need to be ready to do some magic." And I said, "Okay." So it was an abandoned warehouse. So we're driving along, we pull in this parking lot, and there's a couple of black SUVs back in. We get out, we go up, and they check our IDs, and we walked in. I still don't know what I'm, what I'm at, what's going on. And walked up to the bar to get a drink, and they were pouring, uh, they were pouring like Dewar Scotch and Tangeray Gin and Crown Royal. I mean, this was, as we would say in Texas, this is this is tall cotton. <laughs> I look over in the corner and there's a guy wearing a, uh, a little headphone and he's got his microphone and I can tell he's got a gun underneath his jacket. I look over in the other corner, there's another one. I'm thinking, man, what am I into? And pretty soon I see Warren Buffett. I've never seen him before. And then Bill Gates walked up to me and he shook his hand out. He said, hi, Bill Gates. I don't think I've met you. <laughs> I said, I said, uh, Hi, Norman Beck. Nice to meet you. So I, I was really strange. So I did magic for, for Bill Gates and, and his wife, Melinda, and, and for Warren and his girlfriend at the time, and did magic for everybody else as what well. What did you do for so them? Do you remember? I did a money trick. <laughs> of course. I, I, I remember. I remember. Did you take I his wallet? Really or, uh... <laughs> during the, during the, the course of it, I, I want to say, you know, guys, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but. Ford Motor Credit right now is offering 0% financing for 60 months. I thought it would have been a very funny line, but I didn't know how they would take it, so I didn't use it. And I just kept that to myself. But we ended up, they have on Sunday, they have a, a brunch on Sunday, so I got to go to the brunch, and I've done that every every year since. I mean, it's uh, Warren and Bill Gates both love bridge. So, like, we were sitting there one one year having breakfast, and Bill Gates came and sat down next to me. Now he didn't come because of me, but he came because of Bob. Just like other people would want to go sit with Bill Gates and talk to him about stocks and whatnot, they wanted to sit down with Bob and talk about spades, hearts, diamonds, and clubs. And unfortunately, that's something I can <coughs> talk about a little bit myself. So anyway, it was that was it was fun. First time that. Bob ever met Warren and they took him to dinner. Warren said, I'm going to take you out to dinner. And they took him to um, uh, Dairy Queen, which is one of the companies that Warren owns. I think it's kind of funny if you think about it, that that would be the first place that they would go to eat. Well, really quick, I mean, what is it about bridge? Because I know Eisenhower played bridge, Bill Gates plays bridge, Warren Buffett. I mean, what is it about that game that's such a draw for for people like yourself and these 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 other guys. Well, I will tell you, I started at 18. I'm 58 now. <coughs> I've studied, played, or read about the game every day of my life for 40 years. There's not a single day goes by that I don't read or play or study. And I am more fascinated with the game today than I was 40 years ago. It is the single hardest card game that was ever invented or that ever will be invented. You'll never learn it all. You'll never master it. And it's great. It's absolutely um, 
it's it's wonderful. It's it it's something I Warren Buffett has said this that he would not mind being in prison if he was there with three other guys that played bridge. Huh. That's, that's a Warren Buffett quote. <laughs> so it it's uh if you bet that. If you've ever played spades, it's like spades on steroids. And you think about, well, it's something only little old ladies play. Well, that's not true. Little old ladies do play, but little old men play as well. And it's it's really, really, it's very complex. Like I was in Toronto for 10 days for the bridge tournament. You know, start at 10 in the morning. I play till 2 or 3 in the morning. So you play as much or as little as you want. And after 10 days coming home... <coughs> We studied and played and talked about bridge on the on the plane coming home. So it's it's really an addictive game. I I put it right up there with heroin and cocaine. <laughs> no, it's 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 very addictive. How uh, how good is Warren? Well, Warren is a very he's a fine player. He doesn't play in tournaments. So, but he's he's a he's a, he's better than average. He's not great, but he's better than average. So Bill plays in some tournaments. Bill's very. Uh, and Bill got into bridge because of Warren, because he was on the board, Berkshire Hathaway, and found out that, that this was something that they would be interested in and got him started. Now, I've heard, and I've never met him before, but I've heard when you meet Warren Buffett, he obviously is very down to earth, but he'll ask questions about you and shows genuine interest. Is that true? Yeah, he is. He's very nice. He's... He's he's much friendlier than Charlie. Charlie Munger is kind of a curmudgeon, <laughs> but uh, Warren is great. He's really down to earth. He's really nice. He's friendly. Everybody loves him. I mean, he's well. If you if you invested money with him, he's made you a millionaire. So I understand why the thirty thousand people that go are are crazy about him. <laughs> and if you would ever told me that some kid from Oklahoma that started out as a as a bartender in a roadhouse would end up spending time around Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and getting to go around the country and speak to people. Uh, I would have never believed it. I would have never thought it would have been possible. So, so I've been really lucky. I mean, it's, <coughs> and like I said, my main skill set is the fact that I can see things different. I know how to travel really well. I'm really good on the road. I mean, travel is the thing I probably do the best. Um, because that's what I have to do in order to do my job. So it's been great. It's really fun. And getting to talk to guys like you is fun. It's hopefully people get something out well, of trust it. Trust me, the joy has been with us. I, I, I really enjoy talking with you today, Norman. It's just fascinating. And there's actually so much more I want to ask you, but we have uh, already taken up quite a bit of your time. But, you know, as, as we finish up here, just tell us, you know, one, how people can learn more about you, but what you're going to be up to, what are your plans for the next few years? I mean, I, I, if you're not thinking about it, I'd encourage you to write a book. I mean, this is, you know, you could write the playbook for patients here with the story that you, that you shared with us today, but tell us what's coming up and how people can learn more about you. Well, you can always contact me through, uh, the website, scapromo.com. And I, I plan on doing a lot more speaking. I'm not planning on leaving or stopping what I'm doing. I mean, I, I enjoy what I do for work-wise. I, I haven't felt like I've worked a day in, my, in the last 22 years. But I really enjoy going around and speaking to groups uh, and sharing the story about the brain tumor, but also talking to them about 
how to think, how to get along better with people, how to travel. Those are all three things that I'm really pretty good at. Um, comment or question about anything I've said or wants clarification, I want you to give them my email address. They're free to email me. Norman.beck at scapromo.com. I'm happy to answer any question that anybody has about anything. And they'll get directly to me. They won't go to the secretary or anything else. It'll come directly to me. That's Norman, N-O-R-M-A-N.beck at scapromo.com. That's great. We'll put that up in the show notes, Norman. And um, you'll also put links to the TED Talk, the uh, New Yorker piece that was done about you, which is fascinating. You can learn a lot more about what it is you actually do for a job. I mean, it's, it's actually a really interesting story that they wrote up on you. And, um, and more links to, to um, your company and what, what's coming up. But Norman, thank you so much for taking the time. I mean, it was, it was a joy for me. I know it was for Keith, too. And I, I think, gosh, there's just so much more we could have talked about. But it was a real pleasure having you on today. Well, thanks so much. Well, thank you. And thank you, everybody. This is Colin Miller here with Keith Mankin on Pure Spectrum. That was Norman Beck. And wherever you are, take care. We'll see you here next time. Thanks for joining us on Pure Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at purespectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at purespectrum.com. 